The year is 1950, middle of nowhere, New Mexico. A group of scientists are walking to get something to eat at Los Alamos, the lab responsible for the atomic bomb. These are some of the smartest physicists on the planet. But they're not talking physics. They're not even really talking about our planet. They're talking about something that's been in the news a lot after the end of World War II, UFOs. I am here to discuss the so-called flying saucers. We have received and analyzed between one and 2,000 reports. A certain percentage of this volume of reports have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. One scientist jokes about a recent cartoon in The New Yorker. It shows little alien men dragging garbage cans back to their flying saucers. It makes them laugh. Apparently, these UFO sightings are happening around the same time that New York City trash bins are going missing. So anyway, the group sits down to lunch. The conversation moves on to formulas and complicated math. And the most famous guy at the table is a scientist named Enrico Fermi. And out of nowhere, he exclaims, but where is everybody? Everyone at the table laughs. They know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the aliens again, intelligent alien life. You see, the universe is so big and so old that we can't be alone. It's only a matter of time for someone to show up at our doorstep. But no one's knocking. We have no evidence of any civilization other than ours in the entire cosmos. Almost 70 years later, we remember this lunchtime question. It's so famous, it has a name. Fermi's Paradox. Now, I like paradoxes, but I prefer answers. Nearly 70 years after Fermi posed his question, we know so much more about the universe. With a mixture of science, math, and deep space observation, we are getting tantalizingly close to answering one of the greatest mysteries in the cosmos. Where is everybody? For The Atlantic, I'm Derek Thompson. This is Crazy Genius. You can go back to the Greeks and see people arguing about whether stars in the sky have planets like we have. That's Adam Frank. He's an astrophysicist at the University of Rochester. That question of whether or not any other stars have families of planets around them is one of the oldest questions in astronomy. For thousands of years, the smartest philosophers said the stars in the sky revolve around the Earth. In other words, we're special. But when Copernicus proved that our solar system revolves around a star, it set off a multi-century race to find out if other stars had planets like ours. You can see careers ruined by people saying, yes, I found one. And then it's like, oh, no, you didn't. But in 1996, we found the first, or 1995, we found the first definitive evidence that another star has a planet orbiting it. And that was a watershed, you know, like the cosmic pinata broke. And now we know that every star in the sky that you see has planets going around them. And if you count up five of those planets, one of them is in the right place for life to form, the right place for there to be liquid water on the surface so we think that it's potentially habitable. The farther we look out into the cosmos, the more we're realizing, wait, Earth-like planets are all over the place. 
that ought to be useful for something. That ought to be able to tell us something about aliens. Most astronomers want to know how many alien civilizations are out there right now. But Frank said, let's flip the question. Instead of asking how many civilizations are there now, we could ask how many civilizations were there ever. Here's the specific question we could ask. What does the probability uh, for a civilization to emerge on a given planet have to be for us to be the only time it's ever happened? And it turned out to be one in 10 billion trillion. That sounds like a completely made-up number. <laughs> it's not. A it's billion not. trillion. <laughs> Ten billion trillion. <laughs> it's an absurd number. But that's because the universe is absurdly big. There are 500 billion billion sun-like stars, 100 billion billion Earth-like planets. It would be unbelievably strange if all but one were utterly lifeless. The odds of us being alone here are one in 10 billion trillion. The odds of us, you know, have that, that there's been some other civilizations that have occurred over cosmic space and time look pretty overwhelming. Adam Frank is saying, if you could gamble on the existence of alien intelligence in Las Vegas, it'd be the easiest bet at the casino. Several years ago, Frank was having a meeting about faraway civilizations with another scientist. You know, I got started, I was maybe like, you know, uh, two minutes into it. And he looked at me and said, well, how do you know there wasn't another civilization on Earth millions of years ago? And Whoa. I was just like, but <laughs> like, just like, you know, stopped me cold. And I realized like that's when, you know, I saw what he meant by the question that like, yeah, after 10, 20, 50 million years, what evidence is left? So what are you what are you saying? There might have been a Jurassic civilization on Earth with Triceratops cafes and pterodactyl hotels? Uh, you know what's interesting is that we always go to dinosaurs. You know, there you could it could be like a giant tree sloth or something. <laughs> I imagine that a civilization of giant tree sloths would have unbelievable sleeping technology, right? Like <laughs> That's right. That's right. There would be like 50 million numbers on their sleep number beds, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, right, cause, right. Cuz they would care. If Frank's calculations and techno-sloth theories are right, the history of the universe is absolutely littered with intelligent life. Even Earth can support multiple advanced species in its billions of years. This gets me really excited about the possibility of intelligent life strewn throughout the universe. But then I look up into the night sky, and I see absolutely nothing. That might be because life is very rare, or maybe because intelligence is very rare, or because it doesn't last very long. That's Anders Sandberg. He's a professor and futurist at Oxford University. He says, if intelligent life is scarce, there must be something holding it back. We sometimes call this problem the great filter. The great filter is the idea that there is a barrier to evolution, somewhere between dumb molecules and phenomenal cosmic power beings. Think about all the factors that add up to the creation of a human. First, the spark of life. Then, the creation of simple cells. Then, complex cells. Then, sexual reproduction. Then, brains. Then, technological intelligence. So, at least one of these factors has to be keeping the number of aliens very low. That factor, or filter, might be in our distant past. Maybe nothing outside of Earth made it past single cells. 
in that case, it's kind of good news for us. We might be alone in the universe. We might feel a bit lonely about it. But our future is going to be pretty big unless we flub it. But if the Great Filter is ahead of us, like the leap to artificial intelligence or climate change, then uh, we are likely to die out for some reason. And that's a very scary prospect. Even worse, other alien civilizations must have known about the Great Filter and it didn't save them. So what you're saying is that it's possible that intelligent life is rare, that, that the human species is just basically unique in the universe, or it's possible that we are sort of walking along a path that ends with like a cliff. And we, in, in all probability, um, we, are, we are going to walk off this cliff to our death. Exactly. Which is a bit disconcerting. <laughs> yes, it is a little disconcerting. Uh, that cliff also needs to be a bit strange. If it was just some general danger, like having nuclear wars, you could imagine uh, that uh, some civilizations are so peaceful they never have that risk. But this is something that needs to get almost every civilization. And that is a very strange threat. When you put it together, all the equations, the theories, the paradoxes, there are really only two possibilities for alien life. One, they're nowhere, because the Great Filter snuffed them out before they became intelligent. Two, they must be somewhere. The Earth isn't the center of the solar system, the solar system isn't at the center of the galaxy, and our galaxy isn't at the center of anything. Nothing about our environment is unique. So neither are we. NASA is 60 years old. That's a sliver of time in a 13 and a half billion year old universe. If you look for two minutes for your car keys and, and don't find them, you don't doubt their existence. Coming up, why I believe aliens are out there and why you should too. I feel like looking for aliens is a version of Passover's four questions. Fermi's paradox asks, where is everybody? Adam Frank asks, how many alien civilizations have there been? The Great Filter asks, what is stopping dumb molecules from becoming intelligent beings? But I'm a simple guy. I just want to know, when are we going to find some cool aliens? I'm an optimist. I do think people are a little overly gloomy. Finally, that's Dr. Ellen Stofan. She's kind of a big deal. She's the head of the National Air and Space Museum and also the former chief scientist of NASA. NASA is 60 years old. That's a sliver of time in a 13 and a half billion year old universe. If you look for two minutes for your car keys and, and don't find them, you don't doubt their existence. Dr. Stofan has looked hard for those keys. She designed a mission to put a boat on the seas of Saturn's moon to search for life. She also led NASA's plans to one day put humans on Mars. I think it's going to take astronauts down on the surface, breaking open a lot of rocks to find good and plentiful evidence of that life so that we can understand it and say, you know, what are the implications not just for life in our solar system, but life beyond our solar system 
by finding life on the surface of Mars. Now, I'm still optimistic that in the next 10 to 30 years, in our own solar system, we are going to find something that we're comfortable calling life. I'm fairly confident about Mars. I'm fairly confident about either Jupiter's moon Europa or Saturn's moon Enceladus and even possibly Titan. Saturn's moon Titan is definitely the outlier. What do these celestial bodies have in common um, that makes them prime candidates for life? Okay, let's go back to our one data point, life evolved in Earth's oceans. So Mars is the prime candidate. We know it had standing liquid water on its surface four billion years ago. Then we go to the weirder places. Both Enceladus and uh, Europa are moons that are primarily composed of water ice, but they have a rocky core. Titan's the only other place in the solar system where it actually rains. There are rivers that run down to seas. It rains? It rains. What does it rain? Uh, It rains methane and ethane, so think gasoline. I have to say, I am both extremely excited about the possibility of finding life on Titan and also kind of hope we don't find life on Titan because I don't want to imagine anything having to live on a planet where it is sleeting gasoline that is 300 degrees under zero. It's certainly different, but you know, you're being very (laughs) Earth-centric. It's true. true. Yeah, shame on me. If Dr. Stofan is right, and there are planets and moons with simple organisms in our own backyard, that means the universe is probably brimming with life. So where is it? And if there is intelligent life, has it made some silent agreement to never get in touch with us? It's a bit strange that all aliens agree on this, that there are no alien teenagers or missionaries who (laughs) breach the rules and show up at our doorstep. The aliens are hiding. Exactly. That's Oxford researcher Anders Sandberg again. So there is some answers to the Fermi paradox that are sometimes called the zoo hypothesis. The aliens are around, but they're not talking to us. Like we're monkeys at the zoo. Maybe they're waiting for us to bust out of our earthbound cage. Or maybe something much stranger is happening. Let's envision a civilization like ours lasting another thousand years. Uh, And I can imagine a young civilization going off and doing whatever super civilizations do. Cure cancer, figure out cold fusion, travel the cosmos. But beyond that point, once you've seen a few elliptical galaxies, you've seen them all. And it wouldn't surprise me that within one or two generations, we're also going to be linking our brains directly to the computers. And maybe two generations after that, we might actually be starting to offload more and more of our functions to computers until we're essentially software. You can imagine advanced civilizations doing most of the things as computers. They might be uploaded, they might live in virtual reality. Traveling the universe is cool, Sandberg says. But you know what's cooler? Eternal digital life. And now comes the problem. It's too hot. It's too hot. Yes. The background radiation right now is a sweltering 3 Kelvin above absolute zero. The best place to do computation would be somewhere where it's very, very cold. If you want to erase one bit of information, you need to pay a certain amount of energy as waste heat. Like when you work on your computer for a while, it gets hot. So if you're smart, of course, you try to cool your computer. And when you're working on a computer the size of a solar system, the best temperature is as cold as possible it might actually be reasonable for it to sleep until things get cold enough. If you're living in a computer, you don't need to worry about your physical body, there's no reason you can't just boot down for a bit. You know, go into sleep mode. If they want to maximize the computation they want to do, 
that's uh, the rational thing to do. Once you become a computer-based civilization, you, you want to maximize the computing power that can possibly exist. And that means seeking a future that is as cold as possible, where as much computing power can possibly be done. That right now, the universe is too hot for the computational stuff that this civilization has to do. Like, it's August in the universe, and so like a southern bell napping through a sweltering afternoon in Georgia, these digital aliens are essentially sleeping through the heat and, you know, waiting for nighttime to come. Is that basically it? That's basically it. But in about uh, one and a half trillion years, then things cool down. You get a nice autumn clarity, and you can actually really get to do whatever advanced civilizations want to do. The first time I heard this theory, digital aliens taking a trillion-year siesta until the universe cools down for their computers, I thought it was totally absurd. But then, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, this kind of makes sense. The reason that I think that's plausible is, imagine if you had the technology to just live in a virtual world and you can just create, you know, there's, you know, your pleasure and your pain. That's Tim Urban, the popular science writer at Wait But Why. You don't get depressed, you don't get bored because that's all just brain chemicals. You can just, it's just pure, you know, you know, euphoria and happiness and connection and you have all these other friends around and everything's wonderful. No weather, no anything, no death. How barbaric would the physical universe look to those people. Once you can get there, you'd say, why would I want to be in the cold, dark, dangerous, you know, universe as a mortal, dying animal? Urban is bullish on the idea of merging our consciousness with computers. We're born out of these biological, bloody animals that live on a, on stuck to the side of a planet for first. And so it's unfortunate. I'd rather be in the second situation. I don't want to be in our situation, but maybe we can be in the transition. Maybe, just maybe. It does seem like a good reason why we haven't seen evidence of alien life is that once super intelligent life progresses to a certain point, it has no corporeal form. Life evolves into a hard drive. And how do you point Hubble at a hard drive? We're, um, we're in the womb. The physical universe is the womb where real species are eventually developed and the real species don't live in the physical universe. And as soon as they stop being a fetus and they start being a real species, they, they're out of here. They're in some other, you know, vast virtual, you know, landscape, probably communicating amongst species with each other. And we are primitive, tribal, biological animals that precede them. And so when we look out, yeah, of course we don't see them. They're not in the womb anymore. They're out in the real world. We haven't solved Fermi's paradox yet, but I don't think it's going to take another 70 years before we do have an answer. We're still discovering amazing life forms that exist on Earth, organisms that live next to boiling hot water vents deep in the dark ocean, microbes that survive by eating crude oil. That's why when Dr. Stofan says we could find life under the sleeting gasoline storms on Saturn's moon, I believe her. The problem is getting from little green algae to little green men with flying saucers. I think that kind of complexity is a fluke. I like to reflect on how hard it was to get to complex life here on this planet. You know, life nearly got wiped out 
multiple times um, by asteroid and comet impacts. You know, you had these grand extinctions. We had huge volcanic eruptions that, that caused extinctions on this planet. But to get to truly complex life like us, I think, is rare and hard. And here's why. Think of Earth as a smaller version of the cosmos. It has many kinds of microbes, many kinds of bacteria. It even has thousands of species that can actually think. Octopuses, dolphins, ravens. But in the history of the planet, we can only be certain that one species ever evolved technological intelligence. That suggests that once you get life, complex creatures are a dime a dozen. But technological intelligence is one of a kind. That's the barrier, the great filter. And if there are civilizations around the universe that have advanced to our intelligence, I think they'll probably have digitized themselves before they can be discovered. Let's say in 1,000 years, human consciousness has finally merged with computers. That means human civilization in the physical world was over after like 12,000 years. That's nothing. How do you find a civilization that only exists in the physical universe for a blink of an eye? But if we ever are going to know for certain if extraterrestrial life is more than microbes on Mars, we can't just sit here on Earth and point our telescopes at the sky. We need to actually go somewhere. And that is for a whole other show. So look out for the final episode of this season next week. I'll be back with many of these same people to talk more about space. Except, rather than dish about when we'll find other interplanetary civilizations, we'll talk about when humans will finally go interstellar. Crazy Genius was produced by Krista Ripple, Kasia Mihailovich, and Catherine Wells, with help from Abdullah Fayyad. David Herman is our great engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this episode. Special thanks to Matt Thompson and Kevin Townsend, as always. I'm Derek Thompson. See you next week. <laughs>